What is a myth? Well, a myth is a lot of things to a lot of people, but I, I think the basic way I interpret this term is that um, it's a story, but it's a story that has uh, a metaphorical dimension. So a myth, like most stories, is also a metaphor. And what I mean is it's taken that way by the audience. The audience uh, listening to a fairy tale or you know, reading a myth or seeing a movie version of any of these things um, tends to look at it with a self-referential eye. People are profoundly self-centered and they think everything should be about them. So they're looking for themselves in the story or in the myth. And I think the difference between uh, myth and story is simply that um, myths have another dimension. They access another world beyond our normal world. And uh, this might be something supernatural or something uncanny. Uh, it might involve the world of fairies or uh, mythical creatures or the gods. And uh, the myths tend to deal with those more uh, philosophical questions and almost religious questions about uh, why are we here, who made us, uh, how are we supposed to align ourselves with those greater forces than ours. Uh, although I think every story has some mythological dimensions to it. What is a fairy tale? Uh, a fairy tale is a, is a specialized kind of uh, story. Uh, sometimes you can find overlaps between myths and fairy tales, but uh, I have to respect uh, the scholarship of Professor Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings books, of course, who was very specific about this idea of the world of fairy and uh, said that there, there should be certain uh, requirements met or uh, certain things need to be in the story before we can really call it uh, a fairy tale. And uh, the term is used very broadly uh, to incorporate things that don't have a supernatural aspect to them, but usually it means there is some kind of penetration of our world by another world, a world that's populated by other kinds of spirits and creatures, uh, who have different values and different uh, powers than we have. And uh, a fairy story is a, uh, a story that allows us a little light into that darkness and uh, lets us do some thought experiments. That's how I look at it. It, it, that it allows us to imagine what if there was another world populated with fairies? What if there was another world where giants lived and where people could fly and uh, live forever and so forth. Uh, these are kind of uh, speculations that we like to put into story form and imagine uh, what, what would it be like if these things were real. How have classic myths and fairy tales influenced uh, contemporary storytelling? Oh, I think that the classic myths and the fairy tales have had a huge impact um, I would say one of the strongest vehicles for this was, of course, the Walt Disney Company because Walt Disney himself um, had a certain kind of faith in the fairy tales. 
that there was something of value, something meaningful in them, and um, he sort of elevated them um, into a, another kind of art form when he started doing things like uh, Snow White, which was uh, building on other work he had done in short cartoons where he would uh, address or uh, give you an interpretation of some well-known fairy story. But um, he really went for it with Snow White and um, it, I think, alerted people to the fact that this is a kind of a mine. It's, it's a, a, a vein that we can access and we can pull out of that all kinds of entertainment uh, from comic book type stories uh, to kind, quite profound things that deal with uh, the same kind of questions or similar setups that you find in the fairy tales, uh, but reinterpreted for uh, modern audiences and sometimes put into modern dress. Uh, that can be a, a very entertaining and actually useful uh, aspect of, uh, of making entertainment out of fairy tales. Because I think this is an important aspect of it, that these things are useful, that they were evolved, they were developed, and they've been cherished in the first place because they meant something and they were useful to people to interpret their own lives in comparison to these fanciful worlds that are depicted in uh, myths and fairy tales. So uh, people found something uh, useful that they could take back into their own ordinary everyday lives uh, by imagining these other worlds and uh, comparing, uh, you know, what's possible in this life and what's possible maybe in these other imaginary worlds. And I think that's uh, just a, a fun aspect of it, that people like to play these games in their minds, and, uh, but are also looking all the time for uh, some kind of meaning out of it. That applies to me. You know, it's again very self-centered. People want to know, what does it mean to me at this time in my life? And there's a lot of uh, study that's been done about fairy tales in uh, the arena of uh, looking at how the fairy tale is interpreted at different stages of life. Uh, there's a, a, an important writer, Bruno Bettelheim, who wrote a book called Uses of Enchantment, which is something that the uh, animators at Disney I know are very aware of. And uh, he says that fairy tales mean different things at different times in your life. And that we're constantly, you know, casually, but in some kind of uh, careful way, going back and looking at them again as our perspective changes as we age. So uh, the fairy tales have this uh, evergreen aspect to them, that they, they come back to us, they come around again, and uh, we see them anew. And I, I think that applies on our great domestic uh, fairy tale, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, that's one that people get something out of as a child, as a young adult, as an adult, and as an older person. You look back at that story and you can still mine out of that uh, valuable insights. Would vampire stories or stories about witch hunts fall into the fairy tale realm or no? Because some of that is actually based on 
history? Well, I think uh, that when we get into the territory of vampires and werewolves and uh, the various uh, monsters and creatures, zombies and things like that, um, you're in the same universe as the fairy tales because they're populated by all sorts of monsters and uh, scary creatures uh, such as uh, I've just mentioned. But um, there is a uh, fascination with that. Um, that I think is it's akin to what people do with the fairy tales. People are very interested in the borderline between life and death, and that's one of the issues that comes up uh, in uh, horror stories that are often dealing with the uh, limits of life and uh, maybe suggesting to us that these boundaries that we've been taught uh, may not be quite so firm and that there may be more movement along uh, the scale of life and death. Uh, and that's deeply disturbing to us, but it's also fascinating. And it's something that we want to study and uh, know more about. So I think there's a, a lot of focus in the culture right now on looking at the borderline between life and death because it's not so sharp as it used to be. And uh, I think people are finding you know, literature and uh, entertainment to be ways to uh, explore those things. Right, and I think you've mentioned uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, too, and the fascination with a creature that couldn't be contained and is grotesque, but has a life of its own and can't be stopped kind of thing. Yes, well, Frankenstein is an interesting case because um, I, I've always related him to uh, a kind of a, a teenager, you know, that, that he has a lot of the problems that teenagers have. His body is large and it's awkward. He doesn't know what to do with it. He feels all kinds of urges that he can't really process. And so he's going through a, a kind of uh, adolescent surge uh, with all these hormones and, and other chemicals racing around in his body. Um, and, uh, you know, he wants to be free, uh, but, you know, is uh, restricted and, and uh, can sometimes act out in violent ways. So uh, I, I think, you know, that's one way to read stories along the line of, of Frankenstein is, is that we're exploring and reflecting back. Always there's a mirror uh, in these stories that reflects back something that uh, we all have had to deal with. What are the eight common archetypes or psychological functions found in most stories? Well, you know, when I was um, sort of composing my model of storytelling, I looked to the work of uh, Carl Jung, who had uh, made this hypothesis that there is some kind of collective unconsciousness uh, and that out of that, which is like the dreaming state or the unconscious mind of an individual person, the whole culture has got a swirling cloud of uh, ideas and energies. And that out of that, there were some common things that he noticed. And he called those uh, common forms or characters sometimes, he called those archetypes. And the word means uh, uh, 
a, a version that's very, very old, the original version of something. So the archetypes are kind of uh, core beliefs or uh, almost models of, from which all kinds of other variations can be uh, described. But the ones that I found most useful were, first of all, the hero, who stands for uh, you know, an idealized version of ourselves. Uh, it's somebody who is maybe more uh, athletic or successful or bold or uh, brave or uh, uh, funny or, or some, in some way is a little bit exaggerated, uh, but has qualities that we would like to have. And so we project ourselves into that hero. Uh, the next one that I studied was the mentor because I noticed that a lot of stories like Star Wars have strong relationships between a young hero and an older master, like the Jedi masters, uh, the various ones that uh, you find in, in the Star Wars saga. And that was a very interesting study, how those uh, teachers and student uh, relationships uh, developed and, and uh, you could get a lot of comedy and a lot of uh, drama out of those. Uh, the next thing would be the shapeshifters because um, it seemed, as I studied many movie examples and fairy tales and so forth, that there was often a character uh, who might be a love interest or a friend or an ally for the hero, but their nature was always a little bit shifty and they sometimes uh, appeared to be uh, friendly or to be useful allies, and at times maybe there was danger of betrayal or disappointment. So uh, their nature is uh, kind of uh, shifting, and I think that reflects how people relate to other people, uh, that you, know, you form first impressions of people, and then maybe you learn more about them, and you see they were, there was more there or less there than I thought. So uh, that term shapeshifter refers to the way that people's appearance or their mask or their behavior might uh, change quite a lot in the course of a story or in life and are puzzling sometimes to the hero. The hero has to figure out, that's one of the tasks of the hero, is to figure out who am I really dealing with in other people around him or her. So uh, Shapeshifter is kind of a catch-all for those. And this is where I put all of the romantic relationships, but also the buddy comedy relationships that they fall into that same pattern because typically one member of this two-person team that's thrown together usually, uh, one person is pretty fixed and firm in their appearance and their attitudes and so forth. And the other one is kind of shifty and uh, untrustworthy or mysterious. And uh, this is uh, a, a human thing that we all encounter. We kind of know who we are to a limited extent, but we kind of have a sense of ourselves. And then we meet other people and maybe have to work with them and find, um, hmm, uh, there's more than meets the eye. So the shapeshifter is kind of a place where I park all these romantic and uh, friendship and alliance and business kind of relationships. Uh, because they do have this aspect of, of trying to figure out who am I really dealing with. And then um, the next archetype, I guess, that uh, uh, 
comes into play is the shadow, which is the dark reflection of the hero. And uh, I made an assumption when I started working with these ideas that, oh, well, this is where we put all the villains. They're, they're the shadows, they're the dark version of the hero. Uh, and when the hero is up, the villain is down and disappointed. And when the uh, hero is in big trouble, the, the villain is on top of things and uh, feels great. So uh, it does cover that, and, and I think that's a, a useful way to look at villains, that they're kind of the dark shadow version of the hero. But it also, it's a much bigger term in Jungian uh, archetypal theory uh, that includes uh, all the stuff within yourself that you are suspicious of, or you don't trust, or you don't like, or you're ashamed of, or you're afraid of. Uh, traumatic events in the past that you don't want to think about, all of that lives in an area inside of our psychology that's called the shadow. So it's both the name for individual characters who might be wearing that mask of uh, threat to the hero or uh, the dark version of the hero, but it also can be a space uh, within the hero or even within a society where all that uh, dark stuff or repressed stuff is hidden. And it has certain rules that I think are very interesting for composing stories that uh, the shadow tends to get stronger the more you deny it. So admitting to things and revealing things to yourself and, and uh, exploring and dredging up unconscious material is usually a healthy thing. It's difficult, but uh, getting the shadow out into the light is a good idea. And I think vampires as a uh, literary uh, creation uh, are a really good expression of that shadow idea because technically they're supposed to uh, disappear into a puff of ash or something when they come out into the sunlight. And it's the same with these shadow things. They have a lot of power when they're held down and repressed, uh, they become quite dangerous, but when you let them out, it's not so bad. And uh, they lose their power when we shine some light on them. So uh, next thing up is a very useful one, uh, archetype that called the Threshold Guardian. And this is something that my mentor, Joseph Campbell, uh, wrote about extensively, and I found it really useful in life. The idea is that Every time you come to a crossroads in life, every time you come to a boundary between one way of living and another, or one world and another, there seems to be somebody or something there at the border guarding that transition and possibly blocking you like a policeman, uh, stopping you, uh, demanding payment, uh, or telling you to go away. And uh, it's one of the tasks of a hero is learning how to deal with that. And it's inevitable. These things are going to come up. Sometimes it's a character in a story. Sometimes it's a force like a huge uh, rock slide or a waterfall or something that's blocking your path. Uh, but the heroes have to figure out ways to get around it, over it, under it, through it, uh, to embrace it, to seduce it to uh, bring it into your parade uh, along with everything else uh, 
uh, and not be stopped by it. That's the basic uh, key. And I've just found this so useful in life and in my career uh, that often uh, I will meet an obstacle and I will think this is fatal, this is going to destroy me, this is going to ruin my ambition. Uh, and then I realize, no, it's just a threshold guardian. And so I, knowing that, I can make friends with it, I can bring it on to my side, I can figure out how to outwit it or trick it. Uh, it's, it's just an extremely useful tool in life as well as in stories. So uh, next thing up is uh, a kind of delightful archetype called the trickster. And uh, this is one that uh, has a long, long history that goes back into myths and fairy tales, all the way back to the earliest tales we know from the Egyptians and from folk uh, stories all over the world. The idea of uh, a funny little critter who uh, it doesn't have all the cards, he's not big and scary, but he's clever. Or there's a lot of him, like a lot of rabbits or a lot of ants. And as an individual, they don't have much power at all. But collectively, they have a lot of power and they can even be stronger or smarter than a big creature like a bear or something uh, scary like that. And these stories, uh, you know, have their long, long history, and we still enjoy stories like this. And I think about uh, the Warner Brothers cartoons about Wiley e. Coyote uh, and uh, and the uh, Roadrunner. You know, the Roadrunner is uh, would be helpless in the jaws of the coyote, but he never gets in the jaws because he's smarter than the coyote and has a million ways of uh, outwitting him and using his own energy against him. Uh, he's, he's a very clever example of this, uh, this archetype of the trickster. And there are many in different cultures. Uh, Native Americans uh, talk about uh, various creatures like the raven uh, and sometimes the coyote himself uh, being the, the clever one who can outwit the, the bigger scarier uh, creatures. And uh, it also is a place to put in your thinking all of the clowns, all of the humor, and sometimes uh, this is a kind of a mask that is worn by characters in the story. Uh, they become funny in order to do some job. They become clever and are able to outwit uh, the, the stronger uh, characters who, who should have all the advantages. But uh, this, this kind of trickster mentality gives them uh, some advantages. And then um, the, the last one that uh, I added in later editions to my book, it was kind of an afterthought, but it was very important, is the ally. That um, a lot of characters in stories, heroes in stories, um, are limited in some way. They don't have much of a sense of humor. Uh, they are infallible or they have to be right all the time and they really need somebody to go alongside of them, kidding them, joking with them, uh, deflating them when they get a big ego, uh, giving to the audience something very important which is called comic relief. That uh, this is a, a belief of Shakespeare's is that if I'm going to clobber the audience with really heavy emotions 
and make them cry or make them horrified by the behavior of the characters, I better leaven that just a little bit with something funny. And so he would often put into his most serious plays uh, a little joker character uh, who would maybe be a drunken guard at the gate or a, uh, an old uh, family retainer or somebody in, in the court uh, who was uh, there to make fun of the, the king and the, the fancy people. Uh, and I just love uh, this, uh, this aspect of allies, is that sometimes they have that comic role, they overlap with the tricksters a little bit, uh, but they bring balance to a character. And we really, really like this form of uh, two people going through an adventure together who are quite different. They contrast quite a lot. Like uh, Sherlock Holmes is this cold intellectual and he's balanced by uh, the warmth and the heart uh, and sometimes the foolishness of Dr. Watson. So uh, the two are not exactly mirror images, they're maybe broken mirror images of each other. Um, but you put the two of them together and you get a complete human being. And I, I think that's a great way to think about these archetypes is that they're all aspects of human life and everybody has got some of these characteristics and uh, some of these masks available to them. And so uh, it's a great thing, I think, to study uh, psychology and uh, how it uh, comes out in the movies and see, uh, you know, what archetypes am I expressing uh, at this moment? At this moment, I'm expressing a kind of a mentor teacher archetype, but uh, I, I may uh, slide out of this chair and fall down, so then we'd have the, the, <laughs> the trickster appearing. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we, we have access to all those things, and that's what makes a complete human being. And sorry, did we speak about the Herald? Ah, I knew I left one out, yes. That's okay. It's, uh, thank you for reminding me. I've forgotten uh, the uh, poor character, the Herald, the archetype of the Herald. Uh, maybe the reason that I left that one out is that uh, it is less um, essential than the others. Uh, its job can be done by any of the others. Uh, but the function sometimes is broken out in a story and given to a specific individual character uh, to be the one who brings the message, who usually brings the call to adventure. And uh, it could be in a simple thing like a Western, uh, some guy comes running out of the telegraph office and says, Sheriff, the bad guys just got out of jail and they're going to be on the train at noon, so you better gone up and be ready to, uh, because they're coming to, to get you, to get their revenge. And then perhaps that character's never in the story again. Uh, or they may come back later with other warnings. But the job is that of uh, the old heralds in uh, the medieval courts who uh, wore a certain costume and uh, had usually a trumpet uh, to blow announcements and to say the king is dead, long live the king, or uh, the new king, or they would say there's a princess available for marriage and we'd like all the local princes to come around and see which one is the best. Uh, or let's declare war, uh, or let's declare peace, or uh, you know, some important announcement has to be made. And mythologically, 
this goes along with uh, a, a, a character who flies from the world of the gods down to earth to bring messages, and that's Hermes, um, and or Mercury, as the Romans called him, and uh, that was his job, and he shows up probably more than any other character in mythology because he was so useful. He was always flying up to heaven, reporting on things down on earth, and then sending down the will of the gods uh, to the, the uh, heroes and people on earth. And uh, so he did that uh, herald function very effectively. Chris, can you please give us a 10-minute version of what the hero's journey is? Yes, uh, the hero's journey, I, I'm going to give you the quick uh, down and dirty version. Um, there are, in the way I look at it, I broke it into 12 stages, and it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, chopped up that way. Uh, you can describe it in 10 stages, or as Campbell did sometimes, he would take 16 or 32, because he was interested in telling you every possible thing that could happen. But I cooked it down into uh, this rough outline of 12 stages, because I, I was trying to get something that could be useful in many, many, many cases uh, for analyzing scripts, basically. So I came up with this 12-point uh, uh, proposal of, of what the story uh, really is down deep. So the first stage is the ordinary world. You need to introduce the character, the main character the story is about, you have to introduce the world they live in and let us know what's been going on there up to this point. Uh, so this is like a stage that you create on the screen and you bring your characters out and introduce them to the audience and show the character doing something uh, characteristic, their characteristic behavior, a way of getting on in the world. But in that opening section, there should be some kind of clue, we're going someplace else, or there's a problem here that needs to be solved, or there's a question, will the hero escape from this world? Will the hero get what he or she wants? Will they learn what they need? Uh, so this is an opportunity to set those things in motion and kind of uh, set the table for the audience of uh, what they need to know to get involved and in, in drawn into the story. The second bit is um, the stage of call to adventure because you really need to uh, announce to the audience that there's a problem that needs to be solved or there's a desire somebody has. And that generates a lot of energy in the story and draws us in because we uh, are just programmed to observe anybody, even stick figure drawings, and plug ourselves in to the desires of that stick figure. Uh, if, if it's reaching its little stick hands out, uh, to pick up a baby or something, or to get food, we automatically plug into that. So the call to adventure is announcing to us, hey, here's somebody who's kind of like me, and um, they want something, or they're in trouble, or they need something, or their world is in trouble. So uh, it's a way of announcing that. And I've noticed uh, there is a strong tendency to play certain kind of music at this point. Uh, they go to the brass section and they play horns. You'll hear a lot of horn calls, uh, like bugle calls, on the soundtrack at this point. 
So uh, the composers are instinctively uh, going for uh, that kind of sound. So the next thing that typically happens in stories is uh, there's a reaction. So the call comes, how does the hero react? And that's the third stage, which is usually refusal of the call. Most of the time, they put up a fight about it, of saying, I don't want to go, or I can't go, or I already went once and I didn't like it. Uh, there'll be some kind of statement like this, or turning away from the adventure that's being offered. And I think this is there for a very important reason. It's to tell the audience, this is scary. And your hero is naturally afraid because he or she is being asked to go into the unknown. They don't know what's ahead. And we're all afraid of that. We might want to get out of our situation in our ordinary world if we're uncomfortable, as most heroes are, but uh, what's next is unknown. And so it's natural to express fear. And there are some variations on this. Some heroes are really into it and they want what they want and they are just ready to go and nothing's going to stop them. But somebody else in the design will often jump up and say, you can't do that. Don't you know this is terribly dangerous? Everybody who tried this was killed. And there are a lot of things in fairy tales and myths uh, that suggest this. The hero will be walking along the path trying to get what he wants to get uh, into a castle or to rescue a princess or something like that and notices that uh, the ground underneath is very crunchy and making all this noise under his boots and he looks down and realizes he's walking on the bones and skulls of all the heroes who went before and didn't make it. So it, it is signaling to the audience this is serious this is dangerous, and we really need that to get involved in the story, or else we just go, oh, well, it's, you know, some cartoon or, you know, uh, 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 string of images that I'm observing that aren't really meaningful to me. It, when we get scared for the hero, then we're involved. So now we have to overcome this fear, and a typical way is stage four, introducing um, a mentor. And um, the, the mentor is a character, often, who is wiser and more involved than the hero, has been around the block once or more times, uh, has been through the whole hero cycle of 12 stages uh, more than once, and uh, they're there with really one job, which is to reassure the hero and give the hero something. You could equally call this type of character a donor character because often they give something to the hero. It might be knowledge, might be a map, might be a magic sword, might be a, a weapon or a vehicle of some kind, or just reassurance that, no, I've, I can, I'm here to tell you, it's scary of, over there in this other world, but it can be survived. And I went there and I know, because you look, I'm here. So you know that someone can survive this. So that often is used to give the heroes some reassurance. And there can be stories that don't have this, uh, uh, where there's no mentor, and that's kind of a scary story, when there's nobody to look up to, nobody to ask about what are the rules in this other world? Uh, what can eat me? What should I eat? And uh, you know, who's a friend and who's an enemy? 
uh, when there's nobody to ask, that's kind of a horror story and that makes an interesting variation. And I think that's a good point for all of these stages that um, this is a very flexible system and if you take out or leave out certain parts, it creates a very interesting tension where the audience kind of expects it and they want to know why isn't that there? Usually that's there and I, I see there isn't any helper or mentor. Uh, so, uh, hmm, this is maybe a different story that I should pay more attention to. So it's good to be uh, flexible about these things. So next thing up, stage five, is now that you have sort of uh, loaded up your, with equipment and reassurance and you know where you're going, you know what you want, you've faced your fear, you've been reassured, now it's time to get up and go. And uh, when I was working for the movie studios, especially for Disney, they talked about this like an airplane taking off. And they said, you've spent all this time in what they call the first act, the first three or four or five movements, uh, those first steps. You've loaded the plane up and you've fueled the plane and you've told everybody to belt their seatbelts and you know all the safety things. Now get the wheels up and get the plane in the air. So uh, this is the feeling of lifting up that you get when all the preparation is ready and now we're going into that new world or special world as Joseph Campbell calls it. He says every story he ever looked at seems to take place in two worlds, either environments or states of being, uh, two different states of condition. So now we're going to really launch into that special world and this is a big turning point in a story uh, that signals the audience, all the prep is done, now we're really going for it. And the audience likes that and they feel a nice lift there. And sometimes it's backed up by changing the music or the change in the energy of the scene to say, we're leaving Kansas, we're leaving the ordinary world, and now we're going someplace very, very different and exotic. So uh, now you're in this special world and you have to figure out what is special about it. So there's a stage number six that's called tests, allies, and enemies. And the idea is that it's like you've been thrown into a college class and you don't know much about the subject, but they've given you a few chapters to read and uh, some problems to work out and now you're tested. But it's a small test, it's like a pop quiz that just focuses on certain skills and abilities. And so the hero will be put through some kind of challenges uh, that aren't fatal necessarily, but they're a little scary and a little dangerous. And they bring attention to the fact, I don't know the rules here and I've got to figure it out fast. So I got to figure out who can help me with this and, and who will be in my way. And that's where the allies and enemies come. And often you will find Teams are built at this stage. Uh, you think about in Star Wars, the cantina sequence where you're on the threshold of this world of space and uh, the hero Luke Skywalker finds, you know, the rules are very different here. Uh, there's weird creatures and uh, quick moments of violence. So the hero is uh, alerted that he's going to someplace quite exotic and different. So having been through some of those tests, there's a stage now, number seven, which I call the approach. And this is a period of time in movies and in a lot of stories where 
uh, the hero is not quite to the center of the whole thing yet, but there's a, a period of traveling there, and on that travel, the hero and the rest of the team get to know each other better. And uh, the first impressions that you made of people uh, and the impression you have of yourself may start to change because you're getting to know them better. So it's a period I would call, uh, another name for it is getting to know you, where people uh, develop deeper relationships, uh, the friendships get deeper or they get tested and you become suspicious. Uh, you might be paranoid about the other person or you know, somebody sabotaging us and you know, who is it? And you start looking around for suspects. So uh, this is a place where comedy can develop and where romance and intrigue can develop. Uh, it's uh, a time in stories where you uh, sort of let your belt out as a storyteller and take some time to go deeper with the characters. So this all is by way of leading up to uh, sort of the heart of the whole thing. The mainspring is stage eight, which is the ordeal. And uh, this is composed really of two beats. One is death or a near-death experience or a confrontation with death, and then a rebirth that comes out of that. And it may be stretched out over two scenes, one for the death and one for the rebirth, or it can all happen in one scene. But uh, this could be a very drastic, uh, very dramatic scene. Often you will have physical uh, combat at this stage, uh, or a legal dispute, or a big argument in the family, something like that, and it, there's blood on the floor. And it looks like somebody's gonna die, or sometimes somebody does die. And in a lot of the myths, that's exactly what happens. Uh, the hero actually dies and goes into an underworld or is swallowed by a creature. Uh, and, uh, you know, to our eyes, to ordinary human eyes, is dead and over with. But they're living in this other world and uh, in the underworld or uh, they get a second shot at life and are brought back uh, transformed because the ordeal they went through was so intense that it shatters the old self and now they get to be something different. And uh, this will sometimes come as a surprise to the heroes and to the audience that, uh, oh, I, I didn't know I had that in me. I didn't know I could uh, survive and face something like that. I thought that would wipe me out and it did, but I still have something left and, and I feel differently about myself now. So uh, those are, are huge transformative scenes and sometimes very violent and sometimes very dramatic. Uh, the simple way to say it is that the hero faces his or her greatest fear. Whatever it is they're afraid of should be established earlier in the picture, uh, earlier in the show, but uh, at this point they, they face that fear and uh, keep going. So the next stage, uh, number nine, is reaping the benefits of that. It's called the reward, stage nine. And here is uh, where sometimes you have the rebirth or this is the aftermath of that death and rebirth where you take some time and reflect on what just happened and sort of recompose yourself and begin to experiment with this new identity that's come because you went through a crucible. You went through something 
transformative and scary. And uh, now you're not quite the same person anymore and you need to reflect on that. And often it's literally reflecting by looking in a mirror. There are a lot of scenes in movies where people at this stage take a good look at themselves and begin to realize, you know, I, I thought I couldn't do X, Y, or Z, and you know what, I can. And maybe that means I could do something else too. So they begin to uh, dream bigger or uh, have a, a better idea of themselves. And it will often be expressed in a long speech, a thoughtful speech where they're going over what just happened and, and reflecting on, you know, when I was in the jaws of the monster or when the bad guys were uh, about to beat me up, uh, I, I had a thought and that thought comes out uh, and sometimes it's a profound thing that the hero realizes uh, about himself or herself. So um, having done all this uh, sort of operation, uh, there is a kind of a, a party atmosphere almost at this stage. You, you might celebrate uh, on this uh, moment of uh, rebirth, but um, this reward phase, but at some point you kind of have to collect yourself and the energy of the story to focus now on finishing. And this is something that mirrors or, or corresponds really well to what goes on in the life of the artist. The artist uh, dives into something not knowing what it's going to be. They pull something out of themselves that's very intense. Uh, they almost died doing it. I think almost every artist has that feeling uh, that it wasn't easy to get it out of me, but now it's out there. Uh, it's wonderful, but now I have to publish it. Now I have to bring it home. Now I have to polish it and finish it so that it can be presented. And uh, the same is true for the heroes in the stories. They sometimes have to uh, rededicate themselves to finishing. And there's an increase in energy here and often in movies you find chase scenes at this point where the urgency becomes apparent that uh, we better hurry up because the bad guys are almost home and they're going to claim the victory before us so we have to race them to get home. Or the bad guys stole the treasure that we came to get and you know we had it in our hands but now it's gone and we have to go chase after it. Or somebody we love has been kidnapped by the villains and we have to uh, pursue them. So the, the energy of the chase often comes up. If you looked at a hundred Hollywood movies, you would find at least 80 of them have a very exciting chase scene at this point. So this is uh, a, a place where you can almost see home but there's a lot of trips and uh, possible uh, flaws and outcomes uh, that can yet uh, trip you up. So uh, with that increase in energy now we come skidding into the next to last phase, uh, number 11, which is uh, the resurrection, which is a, an umbrella kind of phrase that covers a lot of possible operations. But basically it's the climax of the movie where uh, all the questions are brought to the fore and are answered in one particular choice that the hero makes or one action that the hero takes uh, to stand up to the villains or seize their birthright. And uh, there might be a big uh, showdown or conflict, uh, physical fight, sword fight, uh, gun fight, or courtroom battle, or big uh, argument between the generations. Uh, 
but uh, it serves to focus the hero's uh, energy on how have I changed and what have I learned. And I'm going to be tested here to the max. This is the final exam. Stage eight was kind of the midterm exam. This is the final. And if I flunk this final, I'm doomed. I'll have to either repeat it or I'm going to end up killed. So it's as drastic as it can be. But it has this wonderful effect if the hero faces it, faces their fear, and calls on all the things they've learned in the story, then they end up transformed and uh, can express all these things they've learned uh, in a single action and uh, bring out uh, a wonderful feeling in the audience that uh, the hero is now fully realized and has learned the lessons uh, and has defeated the, uh, the bad forces, uh, although it should look like the bad guys are going to win. And uh, we should be uh, tricked almost into thinking that they have the upper hand and then the hero pulls out one last burst of energy or gets help from somebody and uh, is able to overcome. And then the final step, stage 12, is what Campbell called return with the elixir. And the idea here is once you've been through such a transformative experience that's churned you up, you have an obligation and sometimes a desire to share it with everybody else. And that's what really makes a hero, according to Campbell's idea of the word hero, is that it's someone who protects and serves and doesn't do it selfishly, that they do it with a sharing kind of attitude. And that that's what really distinguishes a good hero is that they take responsibility for a group, that they um, step up or that they sacrifice something at the last movement um, that was very dear to them, but which is good for the community. So there's often a sense of expansion here that the hero's little world and their little desires and needs have a bigger dimension. And because I went through something dangerous and faced my fears, I have something to share. I have something to give. And it might be a good story or it might be love or it might be a new way of doing things, a uh, new idea of yourself, but uh, it must be shared and transmitted. And that's the idea of the elixir, which is elixir is a word from Arabic that means uh, a magic potion or magic dust that has this quality like the Holy Grail of healing all wounds or solving all problems. And uh, it's a, a, a universal uh, antivirus that, uh, that fixes everything. So uh, that's the 12 stages as I see it. And uh, it's a beautiful pattern that kind of promises you if you uh, observe these things and celebrate them uh, in your story, that there'll be a payoff in the audience, that they will feel something uh, and that their life will be shifted or their view of the world will be shifted just a little bit and then maybe they'll have a bigger idea of what's possible for them. How does the hero's journey help writers develop complex characters? Oh, the hero's journey is really useful for uh, giving depth and dimension because it asks a lot of questions uh, that may not occur to the writer at first when you just dream up a character. Uh, 
the hero's journey suggests that there is a backstory, that the hero came from somewhere, that the hero is in some kind of a relationship to his or her world uh, at the beginning, and that there's something a little bit out of balance about that. Um, and uh, then there is a, a barrage of uh, impediments and obstacles and challenging people uh, or energies that enter into it and make life very complicated for the hero. Uh, there's a villain who has, uh, often, who has different ambitions and desires than the hero, perhaps exactly contradicting the hero's wishes. Uh, and then other characters who have their own agendas, uh, some to make fun of the hero, uh, some to uh, give him some grief in the romantic department uh, or uh, some other uh, area. And uh, uh, so it, it, it gives a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, scaffolding for people to uh, work out and ask questions. Uh, about the heroes. I've just been doing some consulting on um, student films in uh, Denmark. I went to a film school there and uh, also had just been working with uh, a Hollywood production. And uh, they all want to know, you know, what does the hero's journey say about my story? So they've laid out certain steps, but they want to know um, what. Uh, what are the possibilities within uh, the structure that they've created? So they usually come to me for that kind of uh, alternate possibility thinking because I've developed by looking at thousands and thousands of script uh, examples, I've developed sort of a drop-down menu about everything that if you come to a certain crossroads uh, there's one kind of obvious thing that can happen, but then there's all these other not so obvious things that could happen, other possibilities. And I know that that list is theoretically infinite because I keep thinking I've come to the end of it and I'll be watching some wonderful show that I love and I'm thinking, well, I know at this crossroads they could do this, 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 or this. Those are the only four possibilities. And then the filmmaker does five, six, seven that I didn't think of, and I love it. That's a thrill to me to, to, to see my pattern, as I understand it, expand. And, you know, to add an extra deck or two of uh, possibilities just is a great thrill to me. So uh, I think the, the myth mythological way of looking at things is... Uh, really uh, a practical guidance for writers, you know, that uh, it, it lets them think a little outside of the box and also provide mythological examples. And that's a part of how I operate. People treat me like a mythological cash machine where, you know, they put the card in and then I'm supposed to, like a ticker tape is supposed to come out that says, it, when you're dealing with snakes and... Uh, <laughs> stones, uh, what kind of myths have to do with that? And then they'll listen to me tell some ancient story that relates to it and they'll go, ah, that, I could do that, that's interesting. You know, they'll take a piece out of some myth or fairy tale and apply it to their, let's say, modern day story. And uh, I just find that delightful, that, that this old dusty stuff uh, 
still can spark things in uh, modern creators. I think that's just terrific. What are the key elements of compelling character? Ah, character. That's a whole subject that uh, I didn't deal with very much in my original book, uh, except in the sense of looking at these archetypes as you know, seven or eight different aspects of uh, possibilities for characters. And I'm going at it again from a different point of view, trying to understand that word, character. And uh, as I always do, I like to excavate and go back to the original meaning of the word. When they made up the word, what were they thinking about? And what did it mean way back when? So with character, you trace it back, it's actually a Greek word, spelled slightly differently, but it's the same word, character. The original meaning of the word was that uh, a character was either the tool that made the impression or the impression itself. Uh, like with uh, cuneiform lettering, where you take a stick and you make wedge-shaped marks to indicate uh, you know, how many sheep or how many bales of hay. Uh, the, the, that those marks or those imprints were what they called character. And then by way of metaphor, the Greeks started thinking about, well, human beings have those marks too. Human beings have characters. Uh, impressed on them, uh, the, the blows of life, the kind of the good things that are dealt out and the bad things that are dealt out leave impressions, they leave marks on you. And then also, you leave marks on the world around you by how you react to what's been dealt out to you. So they put all of that together, the marks the world makes on you and the mark you leave on the world, that equals your character. And they had a very elaborate uh, system of understanding this, which in sort of the typical Greek way was very humanistic. What I mean is they couldn't really deal with abstract concepts except to put them in human terms. So if they're dealing with an abstract concept like justice or revenge or excellence uh, or uh, struggle, uh, the only way they could really get a grip on it was to turn it into a human character and say, uh, let's tell some stories about the goddess of victory, uh, the god of struggle, uh, the god of good timing, the goddess of f luck, of fortune, uh, the gods of vengeance and retribution, uh, the goddess of justice. And uh, so they, they took these abstract qualities, human characteristics, and turned them into characters that they could tell stories about. And so this is an area that I'm studying now, is uh, uh, what goes into making a character that we create as an imaginary person, but also what goes into their character, what goes into making up um, the nature of, of that uh, imaginary creation. Uh, so everybody's got a character which is a mix of the way the world sees you, like your reputation, uh, but also how you really are inside. The things you will do and won't do, the behaviors that are your downfalls or your virtues, 
uh, all those things go into making up your character. So this is what I'm studying now and, and looking at uh, uh, seven or eight of those uh, gods and goddesses that uh, uh, are the Greek way of understanding these human characteristics. Uh, the one I really got started on was uh, Arete, who was a goddess of excellence. And they, had, they use that word, Arete, to mean somebody has got Arete. They've, they've got that quality. They're just excellent as a speaker or as a lawgiver or as a father or mother uh, or cook. You know, they, they just, they're really good. And, and that was called Arete. But then they had this story about Arete, who was a goddess uh, who guided people on the path of virtue. And uh, they even made up an uh, evil twin for her, who was called Kakia. And uh, she was the bad version of excellence. Uh, maybe excellence that is perverted, uh, that you're excellent at all costs and you're, you want to be excellent at something so much that you'll walk on other people's heads to get there, uh, or that you take the lazy way instead of the path of uh, difficulty and uh, challenge and excellence. So uh, this is just for me a wonderful lens, you know, that I use to uh, look at these qualities. And uh, I'm trying to gather ideas about it uh, to help writers to uh, compose characters who have some of these qualities and just asking themselves, asking the writers, I'm asking the writers to ask themselves, uh, have I considered my character's attitude towards justice, my character's attitude towards excellence, my character's attitude towards revenge? Uh, so this is the, uh, the new area for me that I'm exploring. And have you applied some of that back onto the original example that we talked about, the Cary Grant uh, character in the Hitchcock film, where you, 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 there was something amiss and you couldn't figure out why he was coming at it a certain way? Sure. Well, in that uh, example from Hitchcock in Notorious, uh, Cary Grant is ruled by two gods at once, and one of them is Amor, uh, the god of love, or Venus, the goddess of love, and he's got a gorgeous, perfect personification of Venus right in the room there with him, calling him to give up uh, this other path. But the other god that he serves is the god of duty. And I haven't uh, figured out or analyzed yet what that is in the Greek language but um, or, or the cast of characters, but he is clearly torn between those two, and that's a great thing to do to a character, is to give them two gods that they are equally bound to, uh, and but they're in conflict. And this is a great place to, to put a, a character. So I think Cary Grant is uh, trying to figure out which god he's going to serve, and uh, makes the mistake of serving the god of duty for most of the movie, but in the end, he realizes he's throwing away a treasure and he sets aside the, uh, the, the duty in order to uh, honor the god of love, or the goddess of love. How does the hero's journey apply to storytelling? Well, the hero's journey uh, applies to storytelling because it is storytelling, you know? It's, it's uh, 
the way that we have been programmed, I would say, to uh, understand what a story is. And uh, this is a, a, a difficult question to say, is this something that we have learned uh, socially because we've seen so many stories that we have formed an idea that every story more or less follows this journey pattern? Uh, or is it something that is deeper than that, that's hardwired into the human nervous system? And that's kind of where I go. It's certainly reinforced by seeing thousands of examples, but I think that we would recognize the hero's journey and respond to it in the organs of our bodies, even if we weren't acculturated to it, even if we didn't have uh, the many examples we would recognize it and respond to it. And, and this again goes back to the stick figure idea. If you just draw stick figures, uh, if they have any kind of desire or wish, whether it's I've got a knife and I'm gonna stab this guy, or uh, I wanna give some of my food to a starving bird, uh, we get on board and we want what they want or we're watchful, will they, uh, do this terrible thing or will they do this good thing and uh, we just can't help but be involved. So that tells me I think that uh, that the, the hero's journey is uh, sort of the internal wiring diagram we have about uh, stories and uh, that it's something very, very deep. Is the hero's journey a formulaic blueprint for writing a screenplay? Well, the question comes up, um, what do you call this thing the hero's journey? Is it a formula? Um, is it uh, a pattern? Is it a mode? Is it a paradigm? I mean, there are many words that have been applied to it. Um, I think the word that's being used a lot these days to describe other things is algorithm. And I think that's one good way to look at it, that... Uh, you know, an algorithm is a, sort of a numerical way of uh, uh, analyzing things and uh, planning how things will progress in a system. But I think the hero's journey is, is something like that. Um, I don't think formula is a good name for it because that implies that it's like a cookbook recipe and that uh, anybody who puts it up there is saying, well, you have to do this, and you have to do that in this sequence, and this, then this can only be the next thing, and this can only be the thing after that. And um, I very strongly uh, discourage that. Uh, my point of view, I guess, has come around to the idea that you must know this form, and it is a form that exists, and people know it and they recognize it. Um, but you are obligated as an artist to break that form every single time you set out. Every time you write a song or make a dance or create a story, um, it's part of your obligation as an artist to defy my expectations and surprise me with something a combination or uh, leaving an element out that I've never seen before. Uh, I'm thinking about the mentors that I mentioned before 
And a kind of shocking thing to me was uh, a movie called Amour, uh, like the French word for love, uh, by a, a director, Michael Haneke. And uh, this won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Film some years ago. And it's a story about uh, an older couple uh, who are sort of part of the music intelligentsia in France. And uh, the wife is declining with uh, some form of dementia or Alzheimer's, and the husband is dealing with it. And he keeps turning to what would be in a normal story, a mentor. He goes to the doctor, he goes to his daughter, he goes to various nurses and people who are there to help take care and none of them has a clue what he should do. He doesn't have a mentor. So that piece that's normally assumed to be present in any design, story design, is just lifted out and it leaves a gap in there that's absolutely horrifying. It's, it's a horrible thing to realize you're on your own, man. There's nobody who can advise you how to deal with this situation. Uh, or if they're there, they're hollow, they're useless, they don't really serve, so it's up to you. And that's quite, quite chilling and horrifying. They found a wonderful, beautiful way to do it, but it, it was a kind of psychological horror story. So, uh, and that's refreshing, because uh, it, it makes you look at the whole design in a different way. Like, I've assumed there must be this and this and this. What if this and this are not there? Uh, is that still a story? Uh, might be, and it might be a very interesting story uh, that, that is missing some pieces, or pieces are repeated sometimes that uh, the economical mind of a Hollywood producer would say, why do we have two of those? But the poetic mind says, well, because it's nice to get reflections and to see two different characters having the same problem and dealing with it in slightly different ways. Uh, that, that's, uh, you know, an interesting pattern that sort of breaks the formula, but uh, does it in an interesting way. So it sounds like there were 11 then stages, but the mentor stage was taken out of that movie and it still worked? Yeah, the, the, movie, the, the movie I was referring to, Amour, um, still worked very well. Um, and I think one interpretation of it is that the man uh, looked outwardly for mentors, which is where you would normally look, but in fact realized the only mentor is on board right here. I'm it. And so I'm going to have to do something about this situation. And he does something rather drastic um, and very dramatic and kind of scary, but uh, in his universe, that was the right thing to do. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's uh, uh, a way of getting a, off of this idea of, of things being a formula. I, I, I think if you set out to take the 12 stages as I've described them and create a story that hit every one of those beats, you would actually end up with a kind of a boring, trite story where people would know what was coming because we have seen so many examples. And what we're really watching for when we enjoy a movie is the places where they broke the pattern, where it went off and where 
I don't know what's happening. I don't know why it's happening. I don't know who that is. I don't know what archetype that character represents. Then I'm thrilled and I'm a child again. I go back to that childlike uh, state of mind of, of wonder, of like, what is that? Uh, just like when I was originally read the fairy tales by my mother and grandmother and they'd throw something in like a giant or a, a, a fairy godmother, I'd go, what is that? Uh, because I'd never encountered it before. So sometimes these uh, interruptions of the pattern are the things that make it really beautiful. But that being said, if someone does want to try something different, it may be a glaring hole. You may be like, well, there's number three and number eight missing, and, and that's why it's not working. So it's kind of, there's, there's a pros and cons. There's maybe too formulaic or stuff is not, uh, there's holes, there's gaps. Well, you know, there, there's this idea that, that uh, stories sometimes have holes in them that you can drive a truck through. We like to say that when we're criticizing stories. Um, but that's not always a bad thing. Um, sometimes it's an accident of editing that we didn't, we shot that scene that explained that, but we had to cut it out for time or, or some other, uh, you know, the, the, it rained that day and we couldn't use the footage or something, it didn't match. Um, but that can create, again, this very interesting tension in the design and, uh, you know, uh, can bring that sense of wonder back to it. I, I have uh, one example that I, I like to point out is I like Hitchcock because he's playing in this very playful way of mastery with uh, all these things, with fairy tales, spooky things, scary things, shadows and light. Um, but he will often deliberately leave a gap in his explanation of things. Like in one of his movies, Notorious, Cary Grant is a spy master who's trying to get Ingrid Bergman to help him to seduce some Nazi spies and get their secrets. And um, you know there's something weird about Cary Grant in the way that he deals with uh, women and the uh, wonderful love that she's offering to him. She was pleading with him, please forget about the spy stuff, let's run away. And, uh, you know, we're obviously meant for each other, so uh, why don't we just skip all this uh, dangerous spy stuff? And he sticks to his duty, but he's unusually weird about romantic things, about kissing and uh, all, all the stuff that you would think would be automatic for Cary Grant. And Hitchcock just refuses to tell you why that is. So it invites me, as an audience member, to fill in that blank. And the missing piece that I've filled in is that Cary Grant was a spy during World War II, and he had a lover uh, who was also a spy, and she betrayed him, and he had to kill her. And that's not in the script, but it's a very attractive uh, solution for me for this mystery that Hitchcock allows to just dangle there. He doesn't... Uh, draw attention to it, nor does he uh, spend any time explaining it. But uh, it, it added to my delight and my pleasure in the film. Now that film is mine because I wrote part of it, you know, and I think the audience enjoys sometimes 
when there is a, a disjuncture in the story or there's a missing piece, uh, they get a big kick out of filling it in and imagining that for themselves. This is the whole world of fan fiction, which is a wonderful development that people love the story so much that uh, they'll write in uh, these kind of explanations and backstories uh, that the original creators didn't provide. What's the purpose of a character's death in a story? Ooh, good question. What is the character's death? What does that do for the story? What is the purpose of that? Well, death magnifies. Death uh, elevates a story. Uh, and I would say um, in your cast of characters, death should be one of the characters who comes around, who threatens, um, or who actually steps on stage and deals out death to someone. You know, like the figure of death with the scythe and the hood uh, that uh, we see in cartoons all the time. Um, yeah, that uh, is an, an important and I think even mandatory element to have in a story. And I don't mean that literally necessarily, although it's great if it's there as a threat or an actuality. Um, but the possibility of death or failure uh, is the metaphorical way to look at it. That it's the death of, the possible death of your hopes, the possible death of your dreams. Um, that's, I think, operative in that uh, Cary Grant's notorious example that he's hoping uh, for uh, his belief in love to be restored, but he's really dubious about it because death got in the way in the past and uh, death is threatening now. So uh, there's a tension between those forces. But uh, the death of a character uh, may be the thing that makes it into a worthy story that the hero uh, either dies or experiences death quite nearby. Uh, someone near and dear to them dies or they are forced to deal death to someone else. That's a traumatic thing that sometimes can be quite a powerful uh, movement in a story. And uh, maybe they feel responsible or they uh, uh, blame themselves. But uh, the death helps to uh, elevate the story and, and is almost a necessity in order to uh, really uh, shake the audience and, and communicate with them that this is quite a serious, it is a matter of life and death. Should death serve the plot or the themes or both? Well, yes, death should serve. Um, both the plot and the themes, it kind of uh, works almost in a mechanical way within the plot, but we haven't talked about themes much, but uh, the theme, uh, I think there should be one overriding theme in most stories. There can be multiple ideas, but uh, one basic human quality that you're exploring. And um, death should definitely lean over that and cast a shadow on whatever that human quality is. If you're talking about uh, brotherhood or loyalty or friendship or trust, um, that should be threatened. 
And you know, that would be your theme is I'm going to talk today about ambition. Well, what if your ambition is thwarted by uh, death or failure? Uh, that would uh, add gravity to the, the story and uh, maybe shine some light on, uh, on the theme by testing it severely to the point of death. So uh, those things can all work together to make a, a nice design. What impact does the death of the hero have on other characters in the story? Oh, that's a great thing. When the hero dies or appears to die, there is an impact on everybody else in the story. Uh, the great example that brought this to my attention as a young film student, when I was looking for the hidden rules and had just found them in the work of Joseph Campbell. So there's the whole pattern. Um, then I went to see the first Star Wars movie, which came out within a few days after reading Campbell for the first time. And by golly, there everything was. But in uh, the critical scene in the middle of that movie that corresponds for me to the ordeal, stage eight in my frame, um, is that they're in this giant trash masher thing at the bottom of the Death Star and Luke Skywalker, our hero, is pulled under by something with tentacles and appears to uh, have died. Not for long, but for just a few frames, you see bubbles come up and then no bubbles. The water goes flat. And then the attention turns away from him to all the other characters who are watching. And they are freaking out because they think the evidence is telling them Master Luke is dead. Uh, he's been pulled to his death. And so they're all thinking, how am I going to go on and who's going to be the hero now? And I, sitting in the audience, am one with them, wondering if I'm not Luke Skywalker anymore, who am I? in this movie. I identified with him. I'm going through the story wanting what he wants, and now if he's dead, who am I? So there was this sense of unease and uh, a sense that something's been pulled out of the design, and it creates a vacuum. And I think that's uh, embedded in um, a lot of ancient rituals uh, that go back to the Stone Age times when to escape from the uh, ice sheets, from the glaciers, we had to go into caves in Europe. Uh, they acted out these kind of scenes where uh, the shaman or the leader of the ceremony would take on the robes of a buffalo or something and would dance around and then would seem to die. It's, it's like built in, it's like baked into uh, ritual uh, performances that uh, you will enact the life of the characters of, of these supernatural forces like the buffalo spirit or something like that, but also their death. And the audience uh, is programmed or trained to react by crying, uh, by you know, holding themselves tight and worrying, oh, what's going to happen to us now that we don't have a hero to protect us? Uh, they gather around the sort of pit where the hero has fallen in uh, and are deeply affected by it and depressed. 
And this is part of the magic of the hero's journey is that then that figure, the robed uh, shaman who's playing the role of the buffalo or Luke Skywalker comes back to life, sort of defying our expectations and our understanding of death is permanent. Uh, so if someone appears to die, they're dead, and then they come back again? Wow, we get a supernatural boost from that. It gives us a lift. And this is sort of the inner mechanism of uh, all stories, I think, and all religious rituals and all kind of performances of, of any kind uh, is to take you to that edge, let you experience that for a few moments, and then bring life back into the picture, uh, and it transforms you. It, you don't come back to the same level. It's like if you took a basketball and pushed it down under the water. Um, it's resisting you. It wants to come back up to the surface. And if you just suddenly let go of it, it doesn't just bob up to the surface, it actually flies up out of the water. So the same thing is happening with human emotions, that when you depress them by apparently killing the hero, by making me think the hero has died, um, the audience's emotions are temporarily depressed and they'll go along with it even though they know, I've seen the movie before and I know Luke Skywalker doesn't die here, he's gonna live, but just for that second, part of you on this cave person level experiences it as if it were real and feels all the things that you would feel if someone dear to you had died. So then they're brought back to life and there's this huge rush uh, and there's a lift. And this can be done a number of times in the course of a story, should be, I think, somewhere in the middle uh, and then certainly just before the end, we replay this at stage uh, eight and stage 11, uh, where the hero is resurrected. And, uh, you know, the art of the storyteller and the filmmaker is to make the death as convincing as possible, or to make the failure as convincing as possible, and then turn it so that the hero wins. And we get so much more satisfaction out of that than we would if the hero just did the things and won. Uh, if they did the things and fell into a pit and almost died or seemed to die, to all appearances they've died, and then they crawl out alive, that's a tremendously more powerful experience than just, you know, uh, doing some task and succeeding. So I, I think the death serves to uh, involve the audience because uh, they're all, you know, existentially concerned about their own death. So anytime you show me one on, on screen, uh, part of me is studying that quite closely to see what's it going to be like for me. And maybe there's hope that I can live through it and uh, live again. Is there such a thing as a hero's death or a villain's death? Yeah, there's, there is uh, uh, room for the hero's death uh, and for the villain's death. Um, in these designs, uh, this is uh, something you can trace this back all the way to the beginnings of storytelling. If you want to go back in, let's say, Anglo-Saxon literature, you can look at Beowulf. Uh, Beowulf was this 
great uh, warrior hero who fought monsters. Uh, he fought one monster, uh, battled with this thing, tore its arm off, uh, and then uh, had to fight its mother who came to get revenge. Uh, and then defeated that one and lived a long time ruling over uh, his people and uh, having prosperity and good times, but in the end had to face one more monster. And there comes a dragon that uh, is, uh, it's a terrific battle, but in the end they both go down in flames. And so the hero dies in sacrifice. And that's a, a common way for uh, the death of a hero to be experienced. It can be experienced tragically. Uh, there's certainly lots of room for that in many, many stories that end with the tragic death of the hero. And maybe it's meaningless. Uh, and that itself is a sad thing, that you died for nothing. But there are other cases where uh, the hero's sacrifice is meaningful and it was done to save others or to show some way that maybe I couldn't make it, but you can. Uh, this is kind of the idea in the Bible where Moses gets to the edge of the promised land. He's within sight of it, but he's just too old. And so he says, you go on to the promised land and I'm just going to camp out here and watch you all go and I'll wave goodbye. And we know he, he dies soon after. So uh, the hero sometimes is handing it off and uh, leaving it for others to finish. And that's a noble death when the hero sacrifices something or gives it over to the next generation. Uh, as for the villains, uh, the villain's death is a different kind of satisfaction. Uh, there is a thing called poetic justice, which means that whatever the hero or the villain did, they should be rewarded or punished in a way that matches poetically to what they did. So if the hero did something dangerous and wonderful to save the world, they should be rewarded with love, with uh, the crown, you know, with being king, with uh, some kind of uh, prize, uh, some kind of victory. And uh, if they have failed, if they have uh, broken the rules of the gods or have uh, let themselves down and let the others down, then it's a tragic kind of thing. But for the villains, there should be this poetic justice so that whatever evil thing they did to the hero, the same should be done to them. Uh, a beautiful example of this is in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy deals with this wicked witch who's already set her straw man friend on fire uh, and is threatening to kill her and her dog and everybody in the team. And uh, Dorothy does an act of mercy. She takes a bucket of water and throws it on the, on, on the scarecrow and puts out that fire. But some of the water goes on and splashes the witch, and Dorothy doesn't know this, but the witch is, in the book, she's, it says she's made of sugar and that she just dissolves and goes down into the floor uh, crying out, you know, oh, my wonderful wickedness is, is over. And uh, so the villain's death gives us a satisfaction that it sort of corrects the imbalance. The villain 
represents an imbalance in society. And the hero is trying to bring things back to a, a state of balance, to a state of justice. And so it might be necessary to uh, uh, punish the villain in accordance with what they did. It's very unsatisfying. If they get away with something and uh, don't have to pay uh, an appropriate price for what they did, uh, audiences on some level just instinctively know that's not a happy or satisfying ending. Do you think, you know, you talked about going to the film school in Denmark or, or working with the Danish students. Uh, certain cultures have less of a return with the elixir at the end, just as, as in life that doesn't always happen? Oh, I'm glad uh, to talk about the differences from culture to culture because this really just came up and hit me like I'd stepped on a rake or something. Uh, when I first started traveling, I found that I was carrying with me a bag of cultural assumptions that came from growing up in the Midwest. Uh, I lived on a farm most of my childhood and uh, my diet was entirely uh, old Warner Brothers movies and cartoons and uh, what was on television then, so Superman and Zorro and things like that. And uh, there were a lot of cultural assumptions embedded in that like uh, the hero is a good force, the hero can change things, the hero can save us, uh, the hero uh, usually is unselfish and uh, is, has the best interests of society in mind. And as soon as I got out of the frame of the United States of America, I started meeting all these other ideas that, uh, for instance, in Eastern Europe, they would say to me, um, hmm, yeah, you mentioned these characters who think they can change the world and who uh, think one person can make a difference. We actually have some of those, but we don't call them heroes. We call them fools and idiots because nobody can really change the world. It just is how it is. And, um, you know, you're foolish if you think you can, you can buck the system. So uh, I began to understand that I needed to broaden my ideas. And some cultures were just outright uh, disapproving of the term hero. And I've noticed that some people like uh, the screenwriting teacher in Denmark had clipped out the word hero. And he just, he didn't teach the hero's journey, he taught the journey. And I think that was actually a wise move because it does away with a lot of cultural baggage that we have about heroes. Uh, you know, when I first started teaching about it, uh, people assumed, oh, you're talking about male heroes, because when we say hero, we usually mean a male hero. And I said, no, 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 that's, that's the, not the way I mean it. It's, it could be uh, any gender, it couldn't even be genderless being, uh, animal or, uh, you know, spirit. Um, so don't get hung up on, on uh, gender or, uh, you know, uh, their natural equipment. But um, I, I began to see that I needed to broaden my view of things. And so different cultures have different emphasis. Uh, we in the West tend to gravitate towards stories that have a single hero, or at most 
what they call the two-hander, where there will be two people, like a buddy type story or a romance, where the two are kind of balanced equally. But a lot of cultures uh, don't acknowledge stories like that at all, and they only think a story is something about a whole community or a group or a family. And um, so I, I've had to do some editing of my thoughts and uh, try to, to get closer to a worldview rather than my own cultural view. It, it still has value and it certainly translates uh, around the world. Everybody kind of gets the Hollywood model uh, and they copy it a lot of places, but it's very healthy that they reject it in some ways and have their own standards and, and views about that. And I'm fine with that. Sure, because I think in some cultures it's considered a bad thing to stand out. That's what right. is it, the, the nail that is the highest gets hammered down? There's different uh, sayings. So yeah, the, but in ours, we're, we're seduced by the, the individual who takes the reins and against all odds and rises up against the crowd. So yeah. That's right. We hold it up as some high value that somebody uh, puts their hand up, they volunteer, they stick out of the crowd. Uh, they're you know rugged individuals or something like that. But as you say, in other cultures, uh, the base assumption is, no, we're all the same here, mate. As they told me in Australia, uh, they said we have something called the tall poppy syndrome, that when one poppy grows up higher than the others, somebody comes along and cuts that off. So uh, you better keep your head down and, and you know, not stand out or not claim to be uh, higher or better uh, than everybody else. And I think this is a real difference in cultures, that uh, the Western culture, American movie culture, is generally pretty aspirational. It's, it's aiming for or striving for greater achievement, more risk, greater reward, um, sort of selling that idea that uh, you, know, you, don't, you don't get without you give uh, some risk. And so uh, that's not believed in every culture, and, and that has to be taken into account. I don't know, this, this may get, I'm not trying to go political here, but in, in American films too, the, the individual takes on the, the corporation, the government, whereas maybe in some countries uh, that could be a death sentence. They, they wouldn't make it. And so uh, just the, the risk of, of how we may appear... Um, too brash or foolish, I don't know where I'm going with this. But. Yeah, I think that there's a tendency um, in Western culture and Hollywood movie making to uh, think that unless the story involves somebody who steps up and who does the extraordinary thing, who takes the great risk, uh, then that's a story not worth telling. And um, I have just seen a documentary, I'm sorry I can't remember the name of it, but it had something to do with people um, who were running uh, bird rescues in India. And they had uh, this certain kind of bird of prey called a, uh, it's a scavenger really, called a kite. And the kites were just dropping out of the sky because of pollution. And so these two men, brothers, had decided that that was their mission in life, was to rescue these birds and give decent burial to the ones who died and nurse the other ones along. Um, and the end of the story was actually quite hopeless. And it painted this uh, sad picture 
of uh, a world where their little efforts were not making any difference at all, uh, and, and the forces of the world were converging more and more so that there would be less and less of these birds and uh, more problems. Uh, but there was something, although it was very sad, there was something noble about it, the fact that they were trying anyway. Uh, and so it, it was a, a, a challenging thing to me from my Western perspective because I kept hoping that they would have a breakthrough or that they'd get a government grant or that they'd somehow, you know, uh, turn around this pollution situation. Uh, but they, they didn't uh, give me that and uh, that was okay because I uh, felt something uh, that I don't normally feel, which is this sense of despair that uh, there are certain things going on in the world we can't do anything about, um, but isn't it wonderful when somebody tries? So uh, you got a little bit of both views uh, with that one. And uh, I, th I think that's uh, the balance we look for, uh, you know, a, a totally grim outlook on, on life is hard. That's hard to watch for anybody in any culture. But um, the balance is what I think is healthy. What is symbolism? Well, I think symbolism is a way of making invisible things visible. Uh, that's uh, a concept. I guess that I learned from observation of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's work because he uses a lot of things in the environment uh, in a symbolic way. Uh, sometimes it's an object that represents uh, some idea that he's trying to transmit. Sometimes it's simply environmental things like sounds or uh, shadows. Uh, he will do little things like uh, if someone is trying to decide if they're going to do something or not, if they're going to be involved in uh, a spy plot or something like that, he sometimes will sneak in a little train noise on the soundtrack, just a little woo-woo, like some, the train is leaving. Are you going to be on the train? So he's giving you subliminal messages um, that you might think is just random sound, but in fact, it's it, totally intentional. And so uh, it's his way of uh, bringing out this other dimension. The people are talking, they're doing things, there's action, but they're also feeling things. And there are forces in the story uh, that are almost operating like gods or uh, fairies. Uh, sometimes you get that feeling in Hitchcock's movies that he himself is uh, a puppeteer manipulating things or that there is some kind of malign god who's looking out for these people or uh, laughing at them. Uh, so the symbols help to convey those things. Uh, but I think that's the key to it, is that symbols are a way of making invisible uh, ideas, feelings, concepts visible to the audience. And uh, it's quite wonderful the way you can 
just show me something like a glass of water and I'll start, if you emphasize it in the frame and just linger on it for a second, I'll start thinking, well, what does that mean? Is that, what is that a symbol of? Well, the glass is half empty. So maybe this character is at that point and they need to fill the glass or they need to drink or the glass is maybe going to break and you know, it will mean something in the text of the story. And we're so ready to do that um, that it makes it quite easy for filmmakers to uh, assign these things. Uh, and it doesn't have to be even a thing. It could be a color or a sound. Uh, sometimes a good filmmaker will, will use a color to signal you something bad's going to happen or uh, uh, don't go there, you know, uh, that every time you see uh, the color green, perhaps, uh, something bad happens. And if after that sequence of cause and effect happens two or three times, every time the audience sees green, they're going to be scared. And they'll, they'll know, on some deep level, they'll know that this is trouble coming. So uh, this is uh, one of the ways that, that symbols can be used. And, and the audience uh, enjoys playing with those toys, you know, uh, with Im imagining what, is, what does that mean, what does that symbolize? So it's almost like um, Pavlovian, they're, they're, you, they're starting to train you so you salivate when you hear the bell kind of thing. It is, it is like a Pavlov's uh, dog sort of response that uh, we pick it up very quickly that uh, if you see uh, an evil character cooking, uh, you know that's what he does just before he kills somebody. So after one or two examples of that, the next time you see him cooking, you're just waiting, or who's gonna die? You're looking around for uh, who is he coming after next? So uh, it, it, is, it is fairly easy to program the audience with uh, little cues like that. It's a lot of fun to uh, find those things. You talk about the power of symbolism in myths and how symbols, communicate universal truths. Yes, yeah, symbols in myths have uh, their own peculiar power. Um, I think this started uh, around what they call attributes in you know, the scholarship of Greek gods and goddesses. Um, every god and goddess has certain um, objects or animals that are associated with them. And when we see that object or that symbol, uh, we might suspect the god is nearby or that the, that the hero maybe is under the influence of that god or goddess. Uh, Athena, for example, who is a goddess of wisdom, has a number of things that uh, are associated with her in art. So when you make a picture of her or a sculpture or something, uh, you include those things and it helps tell the audience, oh, that's Athena, because she has an owl on her shoulder, which is a symbol of wisdom. She has uh, uh, a certain uh, piece of armor on her chest that's called the Aegis uh, that protects her. She has a helmet pushed back on her head uh, that represents that she's a warrior goddess and she sometimes has a spear and so forth. So uh, all those things are uh, clues to that character's presence or that god's presence uh, 
but also can kind of move around independently of them. So when the owl comes by, you know Athena's watching out. Uh, this is a, uh, an idea that comes out in Scandinavian mythology uh, that uh, the god Odin uh, has his own attributes and tools and weapons and so forth. But one of the things he's associated with is two ravens who sit on either side of his throne and they're always going out and flying around and gathering information and then they'll come back and tell him what's going on uh, on earth. So when you see ravens circling around, you know Odin is nearby. And they actually put this into the text of uh, the Vikings uh, TV show, the uh, HBO series, that uh, every time the ravens show up, you know Odin is paying attention and uh, the hero has, you know, uh, maybe access to that at that point. So the, these symbols help uh, to suggest what, what is the energy at that moment? Uh, it, are we under some dark, dangerous influence? Uh, or are, is, is some god looking out for us and uh, sending their messenger in the form of one of these animals or just an object that uh, represents them? Sure, and then with the, the quote-unquote villain, uh, there was always fear of the witches' familiars, uh, the cats or different uh, rats, or sometimes even ravens too, doing the evil bidding for the witch when he or she wasn't there. You know? Yeah, you know, these animal uh, familiars or uh, animal sidekicks uh, are uh, very useful. When I was working for Disney, uh, we were developing uh, the movie that eventually became Aladdin. And uh, this was very early in the development. Aladdin was uh, kind of an immature street kid, um, and he was a solo act. He was like uh, in the original Top Gun, kind of a guy who didn't need anybody else, was not a team player. And as it developed, um, he got a little more mature, uh, they had a different idea of, of uh, the ideal person to play that, more of a, uh, more like Tom Cruise. But uh, I said in the sessions dis discussing all this, it would be so nice if the hero had somebody to talk to or somebody who could go with him in the adventures and observe and comment. And I said it could be a camel or it could be a monkey or something. And the animators went, monkey and started drawing the hero's sidekick, a monkey. And then I said, well, maybe the villain needs one too. So they created this character, Iago, who was this harsh-voiced parrot uh, who sat on the villain's shoulder. And the villain was very serious, but this other character was the humor uh, of the piece. So the monkey didn't talk, he made noises, but he couldn't speak, but he let, he let you know what he thought about things. And we kept going with this, and I think I and some other animators had the same idea at the same moment, which is, well, he's got this magic carpet. Why can't we animate that? Why shouldn't that be a character with its own expressive abilities? And the animators went, wow, that's great, and immediately started drawing pictures of the, the rug uh, waving hello, or uh, shrugging, 
or uh, crossing you know, the two corners to cross its arms, disapproval. Uh, you know, they, they found this whole vocabulary for a piece of carpet and, and turned it into uh, a character who added dimensions to the story. So uh, I, I've enjoyed, uh, you know, making that, that contribution that isn't in the original uh, source stories of uh, Aladdin or uh, any of those Arabian Nights stories. But, uh, you know, that's, that's my little pleasure is to have planted some of those things. What is a shaman, and why do you say a shaman is one of the most original of all artists? Ah, yes. Well, uh, shaman is uh, its a word that has grown way beyond its origins. It was originally used uh, by uh, so-called native people uh, in Siberia regions. And uh, now it's been expanded to mean any kind of wise old healer of the tribe, anybody who takes charge of uh, magical uh, operations within the tribe, who uh, blesses things, uh, sometimes they curse things or people, uh, but they are the holders of uh, the esoteric knowledge, the knowledge of the unknown or the other spirit worlds. And um, they are known for traveling to these other worlds by various means. They have access to them in a way that ordinary people don't. Uh, and usually they have arrived at this condition uh, through some catastrophic event in their lives. Uh, it's very common that people uh, will discover that they are meant for this shaman creative role uh, because of some catastrophe in their life. Uh, many of the old ones in the, the tribes used to write about or tell about uh, being attacked by a bear or something like that and really mauled up and chewed and almost at death's door. But that process of being chewed up, broken, a lot of bones broken and so forth, allowed them to reassemble in a different way. And it's almost like they became uh, radio receivers or crystal sets that could uh, receive the transmissions of this other world. And uh, many uh, anthropologists have collected stories about these people who also say that uh, they have a certain particular kind of dream that guides them to be uh, a shaman or a healer of the tribe. They call them, uh, in anthropology, they call them the wounded healers because often they do go through some kind of near-death uh, experience, uh, either in reality or in their dreams. And so um, these are the original artists, I think. I, I, I think that these things happened spontaneously a long, long time ago, uh, but that we can see evidence of it uh, in the cave paintings that have survived for 40,000 years in some cases. Um, you see images of people dressed up in the skins of animals, uh, dancing and uh, obviously doing some kind of magical operations. Uh, 
in the disguise of animals. And that's part of their deal, is that often they will uh, form a relationship with a particular animal that's important to the tribe, maybe, that you know, they live on the deer or they live on the buffalo, and so somebody needs to be the mediator between the buffalo and the human beings. And, you know, understand if the buffalo all have gone away, where did they go and what can we do to bring them back? So the shamans sometimes have that uh, function, that job to do, to uh, bridge the gap. Or if there's something wrong in the society, like all the water has dried up, the, the streams aren't running anymore, the shaman sometimes will put a rug over his or her head and just meditate for a while and travel to these other worlds, to the spirit world. And there the spirits tell them, well, you have to go up to the source. Somebody has to go up to the spring and see what's gone wrong up there. And then they march up there and they find that, well, trees have fallen in and the, the way for the water is blocked. So we have to, un, we have to clean the drains and we have to open uh, the, the water so that it can flow again. Or we have to do something to make peace with the animal world or with the spirit world, nature world. And uh, the shamans often will bring uh, that message in a form that we recognize as creativity, dances, songs, stories, images. They'll make images of gods and goddesses uh, masks that uh, allow people to get a little taste of this other world, uh, or they'll bring back from the spirit world, they'll bring back a dance and have everybody do the dance, and it has the effect of bringing people together and uh, healing whatever was out of balance. So they're, they're the natural balancing agents that bring the two worlds into a happy, harmonious uh, relationship. At least that's the ideal. So then uh, current artists, are we, are we broken individuals trying to make ourselves whole through our art? I think every artist recognizes a little bit of this shamanic uh, heritage because um, you don't get to be an artist by being happy and by being uh, uh, unconcerned about things uh, or having no problems to deal with in life. Uh, you would be a pretty boring artist if you came from that background and that approach. It doesn't mean that you have to suffer to be an artist, uh, but you have to understand and have experienced some of the darker side of life uh, so that you can interpret it and deal with it convincingly to other people. Uh, so I think it's, it's part of the uh, kind of common idea about artists is that uh, they, uh, they suffer and if they haven't suffered enough, they're not gonna be a very good artist. Uh, so there, there is uh, some truth to it, although uh, I wouldn't say uh, go out and make yourself miserable if you wanna be an artist. It'll, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> It'll come to you, you know, so. Uh, don't go seeking for trouble. But uh, yeah, I think this uh, shamanic thing is, it's something that came up for me uh, when the pandemic hit. Uh, I didn't know what to do. 
as a kind of artist or somebody who kind of ministers in a way to artists. Um, and then I thought, well, then the thing to do is the shamanic thing, which is to go inward. And so I went for a series of long walks alone and uh, tried to open myself to, okay, universe, you've thrown us this gigantic curve. How are we supposed to respond to it? And uh, if there are such spirits, I think they speak to us when we ask them. And I asked, and the answer that I got in my mind uh, was go inward. And uh, all artists should really go to work now to make works, to interpret this, and to help people and heal people because the world needs it very badly. So that's my, my orientation to the shamanic uh, obligation is when things are out of balance, uh, that's the artist and the shaman's job to uh, give people metaphors in the form of songs, dances, stories, uh, art that uh, allows people to compare their own situation to that of the characters in the song, the dance, the story, the art, uh, and uh, take lessons from that. Uh, in, a, in a kind of safe way, you know, where you, you're, you aren't experiencing it yourself, but you're seeing pretty drastic things go on. And uh, if you're smart, you'll take lessons from that. Sure, and that's interesting that you said uh, experience it yourself, because it, it almost sounds like a, a method actor in some ways, where the dark side of that is then you can take on the dark energy or the sadness of others in trying to help. Yeah, you know, I think there are um, dangers and warnings uh, to be uh, observed here, you know, that you, you uh, are dealing with very, very intense forces uh, within yourself and um, that just exists around us. And as an artist, you open yourself up to that, but you also are obligated, I think, to maintain a very strong sense of yourself uh, because it would be easy to get lost and uh, to uh, uh, find yourself tempted by the power that is offered by these things. Uh, I, I'll just say this, uh, that in the early development of my ideas, I had a kind of a shamanic experience where I had worked very hard on a, a paper for class, just a term paper, about Star Wars and Close Encounters and this Joseph Campbell hero's journey idea and put it all together and stayed up a couple of nights doing all-nighters as students will do. And I was in an exhausted state of mind after turning in the paper the next day and something hit me. Uh, I had some kind of a... Uh, shamanic experience where uh, I felt that my mind was being crystallized along different lines and where I might have seen things like a cube before simple uh, you know six sides and a few angles uh, all of a sudden it was uh, some complex geometric shape like a dodecahedron that has 12 faces and uh, 
is very complex with lots of interactions. So uh, in, in that process, I felt I was communicating with the spirit world. Uh, and this is all in my head. I'm not like seeing visions or anything. I'm just thinking. Uh, and it was as if there was a crowd of uh, nurses or doctors around me who were saying, ah, there's a live one. Here's a guy who's uh, kind of tuned into this stuff. And uh, we can offer him a deal here uh, that you can use this material, this idea of the hero's journey, any way you want. You can start a new religion, you could run the world, you could uh, do all sorts of things, create a very successful business out of it if you want, market it, uh, or use it benevolently to heal the world. You know, it's up to you. And I thought for just a second, and I said, well, if we have the choice, let's make the world a little bit better place. Let's use this to tune things up, make it better. And uh, those spirits in my mind said, uh, good choice, and we will support you in that. And so you, you're going to have to work hard, don't get the wrong idea, but uh, we will look out for you. And uh, if you keep the positive view of this forward, uh, and you make it uh, with that intention that this is for good, uh, then we'll support you and, and all will be well. So, and that's really been borne out in, in my career. I certainly have had to work hard, but uh, I've always felt backed up by that uh, original choice and by those spirit guides. So I, I, I take the shamanic thing pretty seriously as a, a real thing for me. What is the creative writing process and how is it different from other writing processes? Well, I've done uh, uh, a variety of jobs, worn different hats as under the dome of the writer. Uh, some of my work was sort of journalistic, some of it was critical, and some of it is pure creative. And they are very, very different hats. And even within the creative, there are different hats, so to speak, like uh, if you want to write comedy, you've got to put on a comedy hat. You've got to be, you know, tuned to look for the opportunities to be funny. Or if you're writing something scary, you put on the scary hat and you look for those opportunities. Uh, but it's, it's quite a different thing uh, to write uh, critically as I did for most of my career. The bulk of my career, I was uh, a kind of a threshold guardian, actually, uh, one of those archetypes whose job is to say, no, it's not good enough most of the time. So we were reading uh, individually, the people like me were reading maybe 10 scripts a week, maybe 12 scripts a week, and 11 of those for sure would be a pass, meaning no. It's not good enough, it's not ready, it's not right for this studio. But every once in a while, maybe one out of 15 or 20, you'd go, maybe this could be turned into something. Or yes, I'm sticking my neck out for this. And um, it's hard to say which of the hats you're wearing at that point. As a reader of scripts, as a professional analyst of scripts, I had to read as if I were creating a movie. I was an act of the imagination. Uh, 
And I had to take the roles of the cinematographer and the director and the sound guy and the uh, music supervisor. And I had to provide all that and inflate this thing that's all flattened out on 120 pieces of paper, inflate that into a, a, a full movie as best as it could be realized. You know, I tried to make it the best production of this, even if the script was horrible, I tried to make it the best produced version in my head. Uh, so there was a creative act involved there, um, but then you have to get down to uh, the, the job of explaining why this works and why that doesn't work and why this would be good and why you shouldn't bother and so forth, uh, which is quite different from the, uh, the writing, the pure creative writing hat. Uh, I, I like that hat a lot uh, because you are in God's chair in a way there, even more than as a reader imagining the thing. You're completely responsible for this room that I'm imagining, the, every chair in it, every person in it, every wall hanging, every, every, you're responsible for everything. And, uh, and it has to mean something, and that isn't easy. So uh, that's a, a whole other set of tasks. But I, I like using both sides. I think it has something to do with the sides of the brain, that the analytical side is you know, off to one side and the other is the, uh, the more purely creative. They overlap, but, uh, but I like that, uh, the free, full creative thing too. What's the relationship between creativity and imagination? Oh, interesting. What's the relationship between creativity and imagination? Well, I would start with imagination because uh, I think that's when I first became aware of the possibilities here. Um, I had just been, I was maybe five years old, and I had just been read some fairy tale by my grandmother about a giant. It was probably Jack and the Beanstalk. And the next day, I remember so vividly, I was looking out the back window into our backyard, and there was a big uh, hedge that was the end of the yard, and on the other side was wilderness and a farm and you know wild animals and snakes and all kinds of stuff. I didn't ever dare go in there. Um, but I'm sitting, and this thought of the giant ran through my mind, and I saw, with my imagination, a gigantic boot come down and crash into the yard. And I realized, and I jumped back, you know, because my imagination had so thoroughly created that thing that it was, it might as well have been a giant stepping down into my yard. And so I realized, wow, imagination is, I mean, I actually physically jumped back because my imagination had done such a good job of creating that. So uh, that's uh, my sort of starting point for it. And then the creativity is uh, all the things that you bring to bear to realize your imagination. Uh, like, what do they say? What does it look like? How does it smell, taste, feel? Using all the senses. Uh, those, those are things that come out of, uh, I think, the aftermath of the imagination.
that you dream something up and then you use your creativity to express it. Uh, that's how I'm seeing it today anyway, so. And I think you've said as a viewer, if uh, at least two of your vital organs don't respond to a story, then it, that it's not really a compelling story? Yeah, that's a real deep belief of mine that um, this stuff of stories acts upon the human body more than the human mind. The mind is involved, the imagination is involved, of course, but I think this was a belief that Joseph Campbell had, that the images in the myths were somehow programmed to bypass the brain and the intellectual function. You can still use it, but you're actually being affected below the neck, mostly, in the organs of the body. And uh, that's a, a rule of mine that if two or more organs of the body are not secreting fluids or squirting or you know generating tears or causing the chemicals in the neck to choke up uh, or making the heart beat faster, all those are injections of chemicals by these organs of the body which are somehow mysteriously programmed to respond. If we see a fireman pick up a baby and carry it out of the fire, something goes on inside you and makes you tear up or choke up or makes your heart swell. So uh, I, I'm a big believer in the, the power of these things and that they actually operate below the level of the brain processing. It, it joins in too, but it's more about uh, the uh, direct effect on, on the organs of the body. If the path before you is clear, you're probably on someone else's? Mm. Carl Jung quote. How does this relate to the hero's journey and storytelling? Wow, I, I don't remember hearing this before. This is Carl Jung saying, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's path. Um, yeah, I write uh, in, in the last chapter of my book, The Writer's Journey, I write about uh, a, a, an event in my life that I call Trust the Path, where uh, I was lost in the woods, basically, and, and in, in some danger of getting uh, in trouble from, you know, uh, being wet and cold and uh, exposure. Uh, and uh, I came out of it with a kind of shamanic experience there um, in the woods uh, that told me this phrase, trust the path. And I really had to think about that a lot. And Jung's quote brings out some thoughts about it. Uh, you're, you're on a path, and I say you should trust that path. And um, you can get hung up on the fact of, well, if there's a path, other people have gone, and I'm just following. But I don't think that's the case. I think the real situation is um, you may be following a path that others have taken and that others will take after you. But nobody sees it the way you do. You have a unique view, and that view is valuable. So everybody's experience of the journey is going to be a little different. And you might stop and take a picture in the same spot others have taken, but your intention and your background and your 
wishes for the future, all those things make a difference and uh, should uh, give you the sense that, you know, my view is worthy. My view is worth something. And I, I say that to people uh, as my kind of parting shot. I say, uh, please tell your stories because the world needs them. And we need your particular story, your particular viewpoint, because it's unique. Nobody else sees it the way you do. And that itself has value. So I, I say to writers and uh, creators uh, that you should, uh, you should not be discouraged because things have been done before. Uh, others have uh, you know, painted before. Others have sung songs before. Uh, so what? It wasn't yours, and uh, yours is special. So uh, I, I, I kind of leave people with that as uh, my parting shot is trust the path, uh, and especially your path, because it's unique.